opportunity to see your text, to have Jesus come to life again and again. Every time he does, we end up more astounded and more admiring. And I know for really for all of us, more in love, more in love with you as we see you uh, through Jesus and his love for us. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so chapter 11 begins with a pretty monumental event. This is the seventh of the seven major signs that are meant to really bring about belief as hand curated by John in his gospel. And this is the big one. This is raising Lazarus from the dead. And earlier when Jesus was a couple days away, maybe down in the area where he used to baptize, we're not exactly sure, but word comes to him that Lazarus has fallen ill unto death. And he says to his guys, to his disciples, we got to go to Judea because something has really happened with Lazarus. They all hear Judea and think, um, Jesus, they just tried killing you there. There is a bounty on your head and you want to go to Judea, much less to the house of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. That's only like, you know, a, a couple kilometers away from the heart of Jerusalem. That's going right into the, the teeth of the lion. And, and Jesus is like, let's go. And then I love Thomas at that point. Thomas, who is just bum rap, right? How, when you think of Thomas, what's his nickname? What in the world, right? I'm talking about unfair. I mean, this is the dude who, after Jesus says, let's go to Judea. And, and Thomas says to the guys, yes, let's go. Let's go so that we can die with him there. Yeah. Like, this is radical, Thomas. And then later on, the greatest statement of faith in all of our Bible, uttered by a human being, when he falls at Jesus' feet and says, My Lord and my God. That comes from Thomas. But you just question one little thing. Man, it kind of sticks. What in the world? we got to get a new nickname for him, at least here. Well, anyway, so they make their way down. And here we go in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, there's a later Jewish understanding that after two or three days, the soul, again, this is just kind of Jewish lore, uh, that the soul would no longer be kind of hanging around the body wondering if maybe there was a chance. And at, at, at four days, you're saying there's not a chance, basically. And, and again, according to lore, the, the, the soul would depart and there's no chance for any sort of resuscitation going on here. Um, so, which means is, well, why do they go through all the pains of making that uh, all so explicit? Because they want you to know that this is a massive miracle that is about to go down. That this is a reversal of something irreversible. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to, oh, and I'm, I'm sorry, this staying sitting at home would have been according to what would have been the norms of Jewish protocol. When you grieve, you do something called sit Shiva. You're sitting Shiva. Shiva is just a Hebrew word, which is a, a different version of the word seven, uh, which means that you sit for seven days. And the, the grieving process would have been that, that you just sit 
for seven days, and Mary and Martha were engaged in that. If you remember in the book of Job, I think it's the end of Job chapter 2, when his friends come over to comfort him, they have a really good beginning, because what do they do with him? They just sit with him on the ground for seven days. And then after that, they open their mouths and, you know, everything goes wrong. But, but, but again, the beginning of that is this very idea here. It's a, a rough time of grief. And so they sit for seven days. In, in verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, again, she, she ran out because Jesus was coming. And she runs all the way up out of the village to do this. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, and I really want you to hear her words because we'll hear them again through Mary. But listen to those words. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. And the one who believes, I'm sorry, and even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. By the way, John, like Luke, uses women to say some of the most profoundly faithful things. Back in, back in John 4, we have the Samaritan woman basically proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah, which many never really came to that conclusion. And here we have, likewise, Martha saying the very same thing, saying, you are the Son of God, the Messiah. After she said this, verse 28, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Again, all the way out of the village. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but I told you, <laughs> but was still at the place where Martha met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. We have to be careful when we hear the phrase like the Jews. And you might be thinking, oh, are these Jews that have uh, animosity against Jesus? For the great majority, and I'm like 99 plus percent majority of the Jews that are, that are gathered together, there is only admiration for Jesus. As a matter of fact, there are thousands of them that we heard earlier in John 6 that were ready to cause a revolt and make him king. In just a moment, when Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, throngs of Jews will be gathered along the road into the east gate of Jerusalem, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the populace. This is the, the, the common folk, let's say that all are hanging on Jesus's words and excited by everything about him. It's only those power brokers among the elite that have conspired against Jesus, not the crowds. As a matter of fact, well, half the time why Jesus isn't killed is because those conspiring cabal of, of, of power brokers are afraid of the crowds, afraid of the Jews, because they have a purpose in mind that goes against what the crowds so desire that is to see all of the greatness of Jesus finally unveiled. So again, please, please keep that in mind. The, the, the crowds are not fickle. The crowds are all for him. They don't go back and forth. It's only when they refer to those Jewish leaders that, that have that attitude. 
Okay, so back, back we go. Verse 32. Again, pay attention again how similar to what she says. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Almost the same words. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And so we'll conclude this story next week. But for for right now, there is plenty to look at, especially as we see the way that Jesus tries to wrap his arms around those who are grieving. And the title of the sermon today is The Resurrection and the Life. The greatest of the I am statements, perhaps, that Jesus makes and the greatest of the miracles that Jesus performs. All here in this one section of text where we can have this beautiful front row seat to Jesus. I have two points today. And my first one is trust him with your pain. I don't have great insight into the depth of grieving of one who has lost someone very close to you in a family. I mean, I've, I've lost grandparents, uh, just recently lost the, the last of my grandparents, but, but, but not my parents or my siblings or a child or, or anything at, at that level, uh, not like what Martha and Mary have experienced here. And even my grandparents, it was kind of a natural thing at old age, not something sudden and just really heart-wrenching that disrupts you in one of the most terrible ways possible. But that's what we have here is we have a very close-knit sister, sister, and brother that are experiencing a loss, the, the sisters are at this point in time, and it is terrible. It is gripping to them in, in the worst way possible. It is an ugliness, and it is a fallout of the disorder of God's creation that came about through the craftiness of the serpent and through sin itself. And thus, this ultimate of horrors, death enters the world. And oftentimes, at the most untimely of all times for many people, uh, and here Jesus enters into a scene where it is as untimely as anyone could ever imagine. Again, can you trust Jesus with your pain? It's a big issue here because Martha and Mary are both in a profound state of, of grief. And while we may be competent to counsel one another, uh, Romans fifteen fourteen says that about us, that we're competent to counsel. I don't think competency is what you really need when you're really hurting. You need something more than a competent counselor. I, I think if that were the title of a counseling agency, uh, you'd keep looking rather than competent counselors. But Jesus is seen here in a special way. And by the way, this is a general principle that's good to use with scripture. If you come across scripture and something seems just a little off kilter to you, that's a sign that it's a bit counterintuitive. It's not going the way that you thought it would go. And that maybe you should dive deeper into the text because there's something in there that is going to be a revealed wisdom that transcends your wisdom. And this is what happened to me in this text here, too, as I've always read it in a quiet time, but never really took the time as if in preparing a sermon to really go deeper into even this idea of 
okay, Martha, Mary, you know, to get the Martha, Mary of Luke out of my mind, although they are the same Martha and Mary, um, not have stereotypes of Martha and Mary here, but, but also to recognize in this case, in both cases, Martha and Mary both say exactly the same thing. So why Jesus so radically different in one to another? And when we take it a bit deeper, we can get past our own best guess and get into the counterintuitive beauty of being able to see in Jesus something more than maybe we ever even imagined. Something more that is profound about him that leaves me in awe again of Jesus, as everything always does the deeper I study it. But, but here's what's, what, what's remarkable about Jesus. In the first case, Martha says to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And in this case, it's as if Jesus stands in the stream of her heart with the flow of grief and stands in it as if to alter it and begins to guide her at that very moment. And he begins to guide her by teaching her, by right away saying, your brother's going to rise again. As a matter of fact, I am the resurrection and the life. All who believe in me will, will, will rise again. All who believe in me will live, live now and, and, and live forever. And he brings a redirecting guidance of hope her way. Not an empty hope. Not a small hope like some sitting in our audience saying to themselves, I hope the Redskins can end up above 500 this year. <laughs> That's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. It is the way Redskins use the word hope. But you can't let that corruption, that pollution, affect the purity and the beauty of the biblical language and the biblical concept of real hope that we have. Hope is nothing less than a certainty in future events such that it is joy-injecting anxiety abolishing and life changing so much so that patience and perseverance become nothing more than prudence that's biblical hope it is airtight watertight guaranteed that's the idea and jesus is butting up against the real grieving flow of the heart of Martha by redirecting it and showing her real hope. And, and as a matter of fact, showing where, where that hope really comes from, from not just a generalized resurrection, but something even more specific that you don't get right now, Martha, but I'm going to explain it to you. And, and so he does. But now look at Mary. Mary says the same thing, right? Jump on down, 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And in this case, rather than kind of catching the stream from her heart and directing it in the way that it should go, in, in this case, he's showing himself to be really quite human. That in spite of the claim that he just made of deity, I am the resurrection and the life, in spite of that claim, we see before us a real man, weeping, loving, pulled into their devastation with tears, empathy, and sympathy. Instead of opposing the flow from her heart, 
He enters into it with her, simply asks, where is he? Comes alongside her and sits with her and weeps. Wow. As I mentioned, we, we may be competent counselors, but in Jesus, we have the wonderful counselor. Right? Doesn't Isaiah 9 say something like that? But, but unto us, I guess that's the King James or a song. Uh, but, but unto us, a child is born and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But primacy in all of that list, Wonderful Counselor. It's who Martha needed and it's who Mary needed at just the right time, at the worst moment in their life. He was just what they needed. And it's what John shows us in Jesus right now for us. Because you may be here right now with a pain that has such a grip on your heart that you can't imagine that you didn't die, that it hurts so bad. And you need a wonderful counselor. You need someone that will help you to finally lower your shields. You know, one of the things that I, I, I just have the hardest time with is in any counseling situation is someone who when they were young were abused by someone who was older because it is often the case that that young person even in just one episode of abuse has had forever the trajectory of their emotional life altered and that they are now walking around life carrying the shields that help them get through that horrific devastation as a young person. Yeah. And it is so infuriating. Like, I wish I did have a time machine to go back there and just grab that perpetrator and do something ungodly and repent. <laughs> but you know what it is? I mean, just I'm like, Argh! the fury that you have because it's so unfair. Now this person is stuck having to carry this. Nothing they invited, but here it is on them. And there is a pain that attends to their life. Yeah. And, and, and maybe there's been some, some trauma of some sort like that in your life that has, has kept the shields up and kept you from knowing the sweetness of vulnerable intimacy with, with, with one another, with with trusted folks in the, in the body of Christ, or even to be able to pour yourself out to others that might help invite them in to, to know this wonderful counselor as well, rather than the, the, the guardedness that has been really the, the way that you've been able to survive all this time. And you know what? Bravo, brava for the perseverance and the strength and the way you've navigated some really unfair mess but don't let that person or that trauma keep you from what Jesus really wants you to know you have a counselor you can trust you have in Jesus the one that always knows just the right thing whether it is to instruct you with hope or to just sit and weep with you but even more importantly he knows it because he's born it. He's born it in his body on the tree. Not just your sin or their sin. Isaiah 53 says he's done so much more than that. Jesus comes to reverse all 
the byproduct of a fallen world. Why does Jesus die on the cross so quickly? Most people take three, four days to die on a cross. It doesn't say that he was scourged more severely than someone else. We say it sometimes, but the text doesn't say that. He was scourged like anyone else was scourged. You know why I think he died so quickly? Because he bore, according to Isaiah 53 and Matthew 27, he bore all our suffering, all our illness, all our pain. He bore everything that was the fallout of a fallen world. He bore our emotional challenges, our mental illness. He bore all of our disabilities. And you know what else he bore? He bore the sting of all of the trauma and all of the assaults that have brought pain on anyone, anywhere, even yours. He has set you up for new life here and later by bearing already in his body the shame and the sting of the worst of that mess. He is a wonderful counselor indeed. And you can trust him. Yes, we'll fumble around with it, but trust him. And here's what I encourage you. Don't don't let whoever that perpetrated, whatever that shame, whatever that episode, don't let that keep you from life to the full. Jesus came to give you life and life to the full. You know that there are vistas and there are chapters that are yet to be unveiled for you. And it's going to be beautiful for you. Go to Jesus. Look at him in scripture. Look at what he bore. Look at his delight to do that for you. Appreciate that his thoughts for you outnumber the grains of sand of of all the earth. That, that, That is the Jesus who looks at you and wants you to know, yes, you, even you, yes, your pain, yes, your shame, yes, your sting, fair or unfair, I've taken it all. And I get it, and I love you, and I empathize. If you need me to sit and cry with you, he cries with you. If he needs you to, if you need him to guide you, he guides you. Whether it's to hope, or whether it's just to another Shiva of, of, of sitting for seven days and crying. But, but either way, he wants you to be able to move through that and have everything that he has died to be able to give you. Please, go to Jesus. Trust him with your pain. Even that pain, so that you can know the life that he so desires for you. Amen. My second point is, trust him with your life. You know, when he says to Martha... In response to her affirmation, I know, I know, I know, I know Jesus. Lazarus, he's going to rise and he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And most Jews did believe in a generalized resurrection. That at the end, there would be a resurrection of, of all. Um, and as a matter of fact, Jesus has, has already taught on that quite a bit. Um, and, and yet... Her belief in this resurrection, this belief in this life that that, that is to be given to her, uh, is in a generalized, abstract concept. But what Jesus wants her to know is there is life, and I am the source of that life. The prologue of John, John 1-4, says that Jesus was life, and that life was the light of the world. But Jesus basically says to her, yes, resurrection But don't just trust in the concept, Martha. Trust in me. 
I am resurrection and I am life. Not I can tap into and bring about resurrection or not I have access to give the power for life. I myself, he says, I am resurrection and I am life. I don't know why, but that just kind of causes me to tremble. That all of that great power is not just an abstract concept, but that I can have a guarantee, recognition of it through Jesus, through a man, through God emptying himself to bring all of that about through the God man of Jesus Christ. And death, death's a funny thing. And and a lot of times we, we don't run to Jesus because we know it's coming because as awful as death is, we, we try to make sense of it in our own ways that are not sitting with Jesus. We're not sitting Shiva with Jesus when we make sense of death. I think one of the ways that I've always tried to make sense of death before I really came to Jesus was by ignoring it. I, I, would, I would be like the ostrich with his head in the sand, even though the Grim Reaper is walking right up to me. Like, that's how I'm going to deal with death. I think all that I do there is I just make for a really easy target for the Grim Reaper to just, okay, got that one. And ignoring it has its advantages to someone who doesn't really want to deal with Jesus because then I could keep living my small life that I had in mind. Even though Jesus has a big life. Look, Look at what Jesus says here. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. That's a reference to life in the age to come. The new Eden, the beautiful new earth, new heaven. God comes down to be with us. All is made new. You get new bodies, beautiful new bodies. Maybe an incredibly fit body, a healthy body. If you're lucky, a bald body so that you have a low maintenance body. Right? You, you can only hope, right? I mean, you might get stuck with a lot of hair. You got to deal with it. Uh, you know that. Or, or you could, you know, again, you don't always get what you want, though. Uh, you get what you need. <laughs> but that's, that's life to come. But then he says in verse 26, And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's not referring to life to come. That's referring to life now while you're believing. And that is a beautiful concept that permeates the whole Gospel of John. If there is a mega theme to the Gospel of John, it's really living. Like really living. Taking hold of that life that we read about in 1 Timothy 6. Uh, Or or this idea of life has two words in the original language here in Greek that we don't have. Uh, One of the words for life that Jesus uses is bios, right? We get the word biology. It basically means you got a pulse, right? You you still are making beeps on the hospital monitor. Uh, That's that's life uh, that he refers to. But then there's another way of talking about life that he's using here. And that's the word zoe. You know, some people are named zoe. uh, And it's, it's named after this. 
named after life, life, like, you know, like Vida. Vida is, uh, I think, the word, word for life. It's my mom's name. Um, but, but, but what Jesus is talking about here is not bios. Like, hey, if by believing, you'll have a pulse. That's not what he's saying. No, Zoe is so different from bios. Because, again, it's not just kind of existing. It is grabbing life by the horns and riding it all the way, no matter how thrilling it is, uh, to the very end. Henry David Thoreau wrote the book Walden. And um, in there he talks a lot about, I didn't want to live my life only to find out I never lived. Because I wanted to grab my dreams, live my life. And, and then he uses this phrase, I wanted, to, I wanted to take life and break it open and suck the marrow out of it. And... You know, I, I kind of like that phrase, but I kind of don't like that phrase because, you know, I, I, I come from an immigrant family. My mom came over from Lithuania and, um, and, and we kind of did everything with our, our Lithuanian side of the family. We lived with them, etc. And so we didn't go out to restaurants much because, again, we didn't have much money growing up. Um, but when we went out, I would say a little prayer, as little faith as I had, I would say this much of a prayer. Please, God. Don't let my grandmother order chicken. <laughs> Whatever you do, let there be something else on that menu. And if she does order it, let there not even be four degrees of separation between people in this restaurant and people I know. Let there be 40 degrees of separation so that this never gets back. Why? Because every single time when my grandma would order chicken in a restaurant, it wasn't just, hmm, this is finger licking good. No, yeah, this is finger licking good. And we're not done yet. Crack. <laughs> my, bro my brother and I would be on the lookout really quickly. Do anybody, does anybody know us here? I don't know. Anyway, that's, oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm preaching on something right now. <laughs> but, 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 but that concept of, of not just a life, but... Like a rich life, like a zestful life, like la dolce vita, right? The sweet life, not la vida loca, but, but, but like, like but the, just the depth and wonder of life to live life deeply and meaningfully. That's what Jesus is also offering. And, and when Lazarus comes out of the tomb, that's what he's going to live. Right? He's, he's going to come out and, and Martha and Mary, I mean, that's what they, that's what they live. They had ventures to live, battles to fight. The, the distress to rescue, life with meaning, life with significance, life that counts, you actually matter. Like that's what Jesus wants for you now if you trust him with it. But he does say that, yeah, but you know what? You may have this and you could end up like that third soil where the thorns choke you out and make you unfruitful. And when he talks about that, he, he does that, um, well, in, in, in the Gospels, but I, but I think in particular... Um, that happens over in, in Luke 8, uh, 14, where he says, be careful or else you'll end up thinking that you're filling your life choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. Think what? Really? Riches and pleasures? And guess what word Jesus uses there for life's riches and pleasures? Not Zoe. That's just bios, Jesus says. You have a life filled with riches and pleasures? All you've got? is bios. You got a biological pulse. 
And that's it. You don't even know the beginning of what it means to really live. I love when Paul says that in 1 Thessalonians. You know that Timothy has just come back now giving us a report of how you're doing, how the church is doing, how your affection is for us, how ours is for you, that we've made the connection. Now I really live. Like that's, that's Paul. Like this is what matters, that we're engaged in the very activity of Jesus Christ. This is what life is really all about. Talk about a vision and a mission and bringing it all together and, and I have what really matters. You have only so many days. Make it a life worth living. Trust Jesus with your life. I love that Martha and Mary say, yeah, but maybe if we could rewind. Like maybe if you were here earlier, like all of this could have gone differently. And they're like, if only, if only. And I I think of that even for myself. Hey, if only I could go back, change a few things. Man, wouldn't that be better? But I don't know. I don't think that that is, is really what's important. More than saying if only, I think we need to look at where we're at now and just say since Jesus. Since Jesus is our counselor. Since Jesus is our life. Since Jesus is our resurrection. What now? We could second guess all we want. We could play the back to the future game a hundred times over. Oh, if I could only go back and buy Netflix stock. (laughs) Or for me, oh, if I could only go back and sell Blockbuster stock. (laughs) Oh, if only. None of that matters. But you matter immensely to Jesus exactly the way you are. Exactly the way you are, you matter. And since Jesus, no matter your hurts, no matter your traumas, no matter your difficulties, he wants you to have life and to have it to the full. Trust him with your pain. Trust him with your life. And as you do, you will find yourself invigorated, living this life for him. And as you do, grab somebody this week. Grab somebody this week and help them to know that they can bring their pain to Jesus. And help them to know that they can get life, real life, from him. Amen. Amen.